Hello, curious listeners. Welcome to the new year and our second year on the airwaves. We wanted to start out the year with a neat treat for you all and share a little inside scoop into the makers of the podcast. Our very kind listeners have asked us to talk more about what we do, so we are going to take turns interviewing each other in this episode and ask each other some listener-submitted questions. You will actually hear from three of us. Caitlin, who is our phenomenal co-host, runs this whole shindig with me. Our phenomenal digital content creator, who makes all of the amazing posts on our Instagram and Twitter accounts. It gives us really fantastic insights into all of the episodes that we work to bring to you, Charlotte. And from me, I'm not special, you just hear me talk. Um, (laughs) Really is super special. (laughs) We will share a little bit about what we do, how we got here to the kids' table, and uh, how that work really shapes this show. So today we're interviewing our very own colleague and wonderful friend, Charlotte. Charlotte earned an MED in International Educational Development with a concentration in Early Childhood Development and Policy from Teachers College Columbia. She also has her MS in Early Childhood Education from Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development, and a BA in Child Development from Tufts University. Charlotte specializes in playful learning and is currently a research associate working with Dr. Kathy Hirschpasek at Temple University's Infant and Child Lab, our very own. And for her main project that she's focusing on right now, Charlotte is working with Kathy and Dr. Bo Stern-Thompson at the Lego Foundation, and is building Lego's playful parenting research basis. Charlotte comes with over a decade of experience in the classroom as a certified early childhood educator. And in her spare time, Charlotte loves hiking in the mountains and along the coast, and she also loves swimming. Charlotte, we're so happy to be able to bring you to the other side of the mic tonight. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you both for inviting me to join you. Of course. Happy to have you. Let's start with you, Haley. Can you tell us where does your love for policy come from and how has it grown over your career? Oh, this is a really good question because my pathway is actually fairly nonlinear, I think, by normal standards. And I actually didn't know until relatively recently that I wanted to be in policy at all. I knew from early in college that I was really interested in psychology, in young children, in human development, learning and cognitive growth, et cetera. But I really didn't have a good sense of what that meant until I got into it. And I had some really fantastic teachers in my undergrad program who opened me up to research and introduced me to a community that that's dedicated to the idea of expanding what we know about how the human mind develops and how young children leverage their social relationships for their learning. And that really got my gears turning. I was really impressed by the idea that over the course of the first year of life, children become socially contingent beings who can walk and recognize their language, sometimes multiple languages. Um, there's just so much change that happens in a really short span of time. And when I reflect on you know what I've accomplished in the past year, it's nowhere near as impressive. And so I really wanted to be a part of that community. I wanted to you know go to grad school to participate in research and be a researcher and really expand our understanding of how that incredibly rapid development happens. And 
When I started grad school, I was really interested in staying in academia. Uh, I wanted to become a professor, have my, my own lab, the whole shindig. And while my program was really great and I met a ton of fantastic, wildly smart people, I did get increasingly frustrated with sort of this siloed nature of academic research. You know, academic work and, and building knowledge for knowledge's sake is incredibly important, but I really wanted to also be in a space where I felt like that work was having impact on a broader scale and really help cultivate that public understanding of development that shapes daily practice and what people do in their everyday lives. Through one of my dissertation committee members, this is a shout out to Geetha Ramani, um, I connected with Kathy Hirsch-Pasek, whom I had heard of, but I'd never had the pleasure of working with before. And I was immediately excited by her own platform of community-based participatory research, where she really goes into these spaces and talks to people who live in those spaces and have ownership over them and are making specific requests for what they want their community to look like and how they want to support the children in that community. And so that felt like such a great, concerted, thoughtful way to include people in the work that we do and really foster lots of different avenues for communicating that work to people who operate as change makers. And I'm still connected with Kathy. I still do work with her. She is absolutely fantastic. But about nine months into my postdoc, I heard back from an unlikely job application at the Center for American Progress. And this at the tail end of grad school comes from my having tried to you know, put out tendrils in lots of different directions to sort of figure out what worked and where I felt like I was able to have impact. And it was unlikely because I don't have a background in policy or politics, but it seemed like this absolute dream job um, to be at a research-focused think tank that let me be at the table of changemakers. And so in January of 2022, so a year ago and change, I started at CAP as a senior policy analyst in early childhood policy. And I find it really exciting for, for a lot of different reasons. One, and I think the, the more foremost reason is that children can't advocate for themselves. They really need people mm -hmm. to do research and to promote policies and practices that are in their best interest. And so it's really gratifying to have come from a community of people that are likewise interested in those ends and to feel like I'm at a table where um, that change is actually happening. Wow, happy one year anniversary, first of all. It's been so fun just to like hear about your job and see all of the amazing stuff that you've been able to learn and the articles you've been able to read. And I can't believe it's like a year already. Oh, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> You've done so much already. It's so exciting. Yeah. Haley Gibbs, the voice of children, <laughs> the change maker. <laughs> <laughs> way more epic than than it is I write a lot and I read a lot but <laughs> but yeah it, it's fun it's fun working. yeah and can you tell us more specifically in your role so as a senior policy analyst at the Center for American Progress what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis and how did your PhD and your background inform the work that you do yeah in so many different ways largely what I spend my time doing is reading and writing um, those are mm -hmm. sort of the tools uh, most readily at my disposal for the work that I do. But in terms of the content, a lot of the work that we did last year was focused on childcare, which is why it was such a treat to talk to Dr. Sam Melvin last February. But it's a lot more than that too. CAP is a multi-issue think tank. So there are experts from 
a whole wide array of different policy areas like health and public health, economic security, women's health and gender equity, governance, disability justice, the list goes on. So I really have this cool opportunity, I think, where I'm situated to collaborate with another set of wildly smart people who know a lot about the range of policies that impact children and families. I know we've reflected on this before, but I really am struck by Sam's point that, you know, any policy is a child and family policy. If it impacts children in some way or shapes the future that they grow to occupy, then that's something that we really need to be thoughtful about. So one of the bodies of work that I'm a part of focuses on the social determinants of health that I think really represents the intersection of lots of different policies. Um, And that includes things like housing and food security, family income and economic stability, access to education, childcare, healthcare services, and all of those issues intersect sometimes in non-obvious ways, but in every aspect of daily life. And so my focus has been on the sort of birth to five years during, during that period of incredibly rapid development. What are the kinds of state or federal policies or programs that we need to advocate for and be really intentional in the implementation of in order to support those social de- determinants mm-hmm. during that early period of development. And so understanding how it is that children develop and the many different factors that impact it, it's really key to be able to do this work well. Yeah, it sounds like it transferred really beautifully from one setting to the next where you had this background in theory and methods, like how do we come to know what we do know about kids? And now you get to really use that knowledge to advocate and to say, hey, knowing what we know, here's here are the items, action items that we can actually take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What are the biggest misconceptions in your field of work? <laughs> this is also a really, really good question. Um, My favorite question for every, <laughs> every guest. Maybe on the receiving end of it, I'm like, wow, this is tough. <laughs> <laughs> we ask hard questions. <laughs> yeah, we get right to it. I think, you know, specific to the early childhood policy team, one of the misconceptions that I hear most is that we're the early childhood education team, whether that's because we're housed in the education department at CAP or because we spend so much of our time focusing on childcare. I'm not sure, probably a combination of factors. But to the point that I made earlier, I think I, I really want to combat this misconception that we aren't as intersectional as we are. Obviously, all policy areas are intersectional in some way. Human beings don't live in silos. But I really do try to be very explicit about the fact that our work can intersect with many different areas and that applying a developmental lens and really centering children and families in that work can have a sort of multi-generational impact that lasts over time. Mm-hmm. In general, I think one of the biggest misconceptions that people have is that children are sort of insulated from these big policy decisions that we think of as affecting adult life, like job security, paid leave and benefits, self-care, or things that we tend to think of as a little bit more abstract, maybe less so now, I think. But things like climate policy, it's not common in those spaces that I think you hear people knee jerk to like, but what about the kids? And so I, I think it's really important to continue really beating that drum and reinforcing Dr. Melvin's point that every policy is a child and family policy. And they're really are no human-centered programs or initiatives that don't in some way affect the next generation and have these kinds of lasting impacts on 
the communities that they create in the future. Yeah, even the way we have models in developmental science to look at how policy affects children, it's always like the outermost ring, right? It's a bunch of circles with a kid in the middle, then policy is this faraway thing or it's more abstract and we don't think about like those day-to-day connections. I was even reading about, did you guys hear about the like the gas stove and the electric stove debate yeah. that recently yeah. came up? I was yeah. like, "Oh my god, like so it's, you know, the environment and obviously the climate consequences of gas stoves, but also it directly affects kids. Some studies linked it to asthma. So I think we often don't like make that connection as quickly as we make connections between other things. And so seeing policy directly affect kids, I think is like a important thing that I've like become more and more aware of the more we've talked about it. Definitely. Well, that's enough for me. So Caitlin, I'm going to put you in the hot seat now. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> I know that being an educator is a really important part of your personal and professional identity. So can you tell me a little bit about your experiences and what brought you here? Yeah, absolutely. So I love teaching. I was one of those kids when I was little, I would play, you know, play teacher in school. So I feel like it's always something I've known about myself. And my fun fact is that I've had the chance to teach in some capacity at most grade levels. So I used to volunteer at a preschool. I have my K through six initial teaching license in Massachusetts. I taught English when I was in China. I taught middle school summer science courses. I taught girls how to code. And then working up to undergrad, I got to be a college instructor for two courses at NYU and Brooklyn College, which I absolutely loved. I loved working with my students and it was in 2022, so it was all virtual. So I feel like having that unique opportunity to lead a community in a time where students were honestly in crisis was really uh, meaningful for me. And then most recently, I've also facilitated a diversity, equity, and inclusion certificate course for professionals. So like grown-ups, grown-ups, you know, beyond students. So it's kind of like spanning the whole spectrum. I know that the context is different for each of those groups, but which one has been your favorite to work with? I I cannot pick. It's like choosing between your children, right? Which is your favorite. Um, But obviously, if I had to pick, I have a sweet spot for preschool and for like really young kids. You know, a lot of what you're saying about those early five years, zero to five, zero to three, you know, something about that really, really touches me. And just my background. So I grew up with one immigrant parent and one parent who grew up in poverty. So education was the number one value in my family. So in my household, education really was transformative. It changed the life trajectories of my parents. So I always drew, grew up dreaming that I would pursue my education until I could no more. And I learned that was called a PhD. So that's what I did. And my goal for my students is to really bring in that element of transformation. So you know, when they come in, my goal is always that they leave with a new perspective, that something about how they see the world has been transformed through that learning experience. I love that. That's such a great way to look at teaching. And it's so important that our students, we can equip our students with the skills and mindset to to be able to shift their perspectives. That's great. Caitlin, I'm curious if you could tell us more about your journey into research. So we learned about your teaching career, but what led you into research? Yeah, thanks for that question, Charlotte. So my love for research really grew out of my experiences in the classroom. So like Haley said, all those different teaching contexts, they're really different, right? So I figured out really quickly that the context and also culture really shapes the learning environment. So, and I've always just been a really deeply curious person. I I would call it passionate. Some might call it obsessive, but it's a really good quality because when you're a researcher, you have to really not put down a problem until you feel like you've turned it over a million times and you really understand it. And I love that process. It was a pretty natural fit for my personality and my interests. 
that I could actually produce knowledge, right? After like 27 years that I spent as a student, you read so many books and eventually got to a point where I was like, okay, I want to write the next book, right? Like I want to expand what's already out there. I mean, in terms of what I actually study, so the last few years I focused a lot on children's play and play is a really important part of how young children actually learn. So play is free. Everyone can access it. It can be done pretty much anywhere, anytime with any partner. And play, the amazing thing about play is that we can embed it into the spaces that kids go into every day. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about how children learn through play, how we can embed play in spaces that kids go every single day. And also I've thought deeply about how the context and the culture of children's lives, particularly their cultural values or the economic settings that they grow up in, really shape their opportunities to learn and to experience transformative education. That's great. We'd love to hear a bit more about your postdoc work at Temple and your projects that you're working on now. Sure. So I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at Temple University. I work with Kathy Hirsch-Pasek. She's our principal investigator. And I'm lucky enough to work with people like Charlotte. It's also how I met Haley. And I get to work with people who are as obsessed with the same questions as I am. Mm-hmm. So a postdoc is really a, a job that you have for often a couple of years after you get a PhD and you get to do a lot of really cool things with data. So you get to collect your own data, you get to code and analyze it, you get to write it up and present it at conferences, you get to work with research assistants, and also I've had the chance to do consulting with community groups and foundations and some of our local and international partners. And the best part of my job that most postdocs don't get to do is I get to co-design playful learning landscapes with designers and architects. So playful learning landscapes are installations that are designed to spark learning in public or private spaces like parks or childcare centers. They're designed by the community for the community in collaboration with research scientists, and they are embedded with principles of learning in mind. So for example, a community I'm currently working with designed a life-size mural of the Philadelphia skyline, and it has images from all around their neighborhoods, and it's embedded with a word search to help kids learn literacy skills. Another really fun playful learning installation is a Dance Dance Revolution inspired shape, early shape learning game that we are currently fabricating, which I am, I cannot wait to test it. <laughs> it's yeah. going to be so fun. Please pictures. That sounds so cool. Absolutely, yes. So I'm leading a, a research practice partnership to bring playful learning landscapes into Bright Horizons child care centers. So these examples I've described are, are, have grown out of this partnership. And this is just super full circle for me because so in college, every single week, I volunteered actually to Bright Horizons Center. And as part of my major, we had this assignment where we had to go into the classroom and there was this wall that they had and it was a one-way wall. So students would come and they would observe and the kids would be, you know, the kids couldn't see us. They were, you know, eating, doing their things. And we would just, you know, be observing their milestones and walking and talking. And I remember feeling like, why is there this glass wall (laughs) between me and what's happening, right? And I kept thinking like, I want to be, you know, I want to be doing deep and thoughtful research and doing these observations. I also want to be with the kids and with the teachers. So I thought a lot about like, how do we take down this metaphorical wall, right? And for me, the answer is really through research practice partnerships. So 
to be able to, on a Monday, talk with teachers and learn about what their community needs. And then on a Tuesday to present the voices of the teachers and the research at at conferences, like that's my dream job. And (laughs) I'm so glad that that job exists. And I found Kathy Hurst-Pasig and she told me about this grant and she needed someone to lead it. And I was just like, yes, me, you should definitely pick me. (laughs) I promise I will love this project deeply. So that's what I've been able to do for the last year and a half now. And we're getting ready to install the playful learning installations. And it's just, it's super fulfilling work for me. Yeah, it's so exciting. And it's been such a pleasure hearing more about all the work you do with the communities and with the teachers and, and some parents too, and, and designing, co-designing all of these PLLs here, installing. And so now I'm curious to know what are the biggest misconceptions in your line of work? Yeah, uh, the misconceptions question. <laughs> well, and so I can start, but I'd love to hear, Charlotte, your thoughts on this too, because of all of you know your experience in the classroom. And I know you've experienced a lot of these firsthand, but I would say the biggest misconceptions are that play is trivial, that it like doesn't matter, that it's just something kids do, but it doesn't, it's not productive. The second myth is that teachers are glorified babysitters, which makes me cringe to say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then that, you know, research is book knowledge, but doesn't like translate to the real world. You know, I hear people say like, well, wait till you have kids. See how that, and I'm like, you know what? Like we can translate too. So I guess with that, I would love to transition to talking about your work, Charlotte, and hearing more from you. So first, do you want to just tell us a little bit I know that these are misconceptions that you've encountered in your work. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I've I've certainly encountered all three of these misconceptions over the course of my career at some point. The first, that play is trivial. I've come across a lot, unfortunately, in combating this misconception and, and working on opening up the public's eyes to the magic and the importance of play and how play can be such a vehicle for, for learning actually really complex mm you know, academic things has motivated a lot of my career. The second that preschool teachers are babysitters, I've definitely encountered that in my during my time as a preschool teacher. And I'm sure, Caitlin, you probably have experiences with that as well. And I just have a lot of memories of being in social situations. And, you know, everyone in the group is sharing about their job. And most people are met with follow-up questions and a certain level of respect. And to me, I was always met with, oh, that's so cute. Oh, <laughs> and it's the is worst. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yes, they are yeah. very cute. But in a way, it just felt like, oh, there's this misconception there that, yeah, um, I feel that. yeah, I just feel like after a while, I got used to it and it stung. But then I was like, you know what, I'm going to explain a bit more about what my work actually entails. And so I got used to following up with, oh, like this is this is what I do and, and why it's important. And, and people get to see how, how much work and thought goes into it. And I know there's a lot of layers to this misconception, but I think a lot of it is just lack of knowledge. So I actually had this dream as a teacher, as a preschool teacher, that I'd go and interview early childhood educators and learn more about like their day, what they actually do and like what their background is and what they're motivated by and make a documentary about it just just to show the public and to help build that build that understanding and the respect for the profession. Yeah. So maybe someday I'll revisit that dream. My sister is in film, so maybe we'll do it. <laughs> yes. I, think, I think once people know once people know and, and can hear from from preschool teachers themselves. Yeah. I, I think more understanding would be 
would be developed there. Totally. Like almost like an Avid Elementary, but for preschool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I know Avid Elementary has been huge, I think, for helping people understand. I've had a lot of people totally. say, oh, was that like your experience? And I said, yeah, a lot of the things do happen. Yes. Right. But yeah, this last misconception about parenting knowledge just being research or is just research that doesn't really work in the real world. I've definitely confronted in my parenting project that I'm working on this year. But I will say I am seeing this movement towards more parents wanting to know the science and the research. Particularly, we're seeing a lot through like parenting influencers. This is new thing on Instagram and TikTok and trying to make that research accessible. It's not always rooted in science. I mean, there's some, there are some great accounts there, but part of my work this year is to help translate that research for parents and, and make it more accessible. Yeah. And it's such important work too, because I feel like parents are so bombarded with information that figuring out what is a really good source, what can I trust is just another layer added on to all of the things that they're already managing. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more, Charlotte, about the work that you do with the Lego Foundation? Yeah, so I have a great opportunity to work with both Dr. Kathy Hirschpasik at Temple University and Dr. Bo Stern-Thompson at the Lego Foundation. And I'm helping them or working with them to support Lego's playful learning guidance for parents and for parent-facing organizations. So... As we all can agree, parenting is one of the hardest, but also most important jobs. And research finds that parents have become increasingly stressed over the past couple of decades, particularly the last few years. That can't be overstated with COVID, just parents dealing with so much. And they're kind of generally at this point where a lot of parents have been hearing about how they need to help their kids combat this learning loss, right? There's this overall fear Mm -hmm. of "Ah, learning loss. We need to make up for all this lost time. And that's compounded by this environment that was already existing of the sense of childhood as a race. Like we've heard of the hurry child phenomenon or syndrome introduced by David Elkind and this idea that, yeah, we're just rushing children and preparing them for future success. Mm-hmm. Like that's the de- that's the destination rather than childhood as a journey. And, right. and that stress really builds on, on parents. So we found that oftentimes the way parents keep up with that is signing their child up for various structured activities or spending a lot of money on prod- products that promise to to support their child academically. And it's certainly not to say that activities and products can't enrich their child's life, but within this race, a lot of joy is taken out of parenting. And when it really comes down to it, one of the most important things for a child's development is that their parents are happy and can share positive interactions with them. So the overall goal of our project is to help bring joy to parenting by helping parents see that Research finds that it's actually these small everyday moments and positive daily interactions that can make a really big difference to their child's learning and development. So in our recently published uh, report that can be found on Lego's website, learningthroughplay.com. So check it out. (laughs) It's there in a few weeks it'll be launched. We take the latest and best research. We synthesize it for parents to offer 15 approaches that parents can consider. It's not like a prescription, right? It's just consider these to support your child's learning and development in a way that hopefully feels manageable, 
and meaningful and of course joyful. That's that's the goal. And they're really not meant to be something extra that parents have to do or feel guilty for not doing, but they just offer a new way of looking at and approaching normal interactions. For example, one approach is engage in two-way conversation as so back and forth conversation, or as we call it oftentimes in research, conversational duets or serve and return and encouraging parents to take turns when talking with their child. And we suggest just asking open-ended questions rather than simple yes or no questions, which seems really simple, but can be really powerful. I mean, as you both know, like there's so much research on the power of that and it's not anything extra really. It's just something added on. And we also offer guidance to parent-facing organizations for how they can support parents in these playful learning and joyful parenting approaches and how they can work with parents to ensure that these approaches can be adapted to be made meaningful for parents. That's so important because there really is still so much to learn. Obviously, parenting is deeply personal and deeply rooted in, in culture and context. And so science lays this beautiful foundation, right? Our, a review of the literature offers this starting point, but as we can agree, it, it has to be contextualized. So right now I'm working on surveying parents to find out what matters to them, what challenges they face, and how these approaches that we've put out resonate with them. So that's our yeah. next step. It's so inspiring to me that you can connect with well, first of all, draw upon your own experience in the classroom and then connect with so many parents and like kind of be a champion and help amplify the voices of parents and what they need and making it something that's easy and accessible, I think is so important in when, you know, when we're being inundated with, with information everywhere. So it's, I feel like it sounds relatively simple, but it's such an important and impactful thing for parents who are going through the busy everyday emotions of their lives. It also feels like it would be incredibly validating as a parent to receive yeah. or to be able to access a toolkit like this. Like it, you're not saying that you're doing anything wrong as a parent, that you're failing in some respect or adding to the stress of raising a child during a pandemic, which itself is an enormous feat. You're saying, look, you're doing an amazing job. You are a loving parent who really wants to create these kinds of enriching experiences for your child, here are just some nudges that we're offering to sort of just tweak your approach a little bit or tweak how you're thinking about this conversation that you're already having with your child. We're just here to sort of equip you with the tools to give you an edge uh, a little bit based on what we understand about human development and how to, how to support that. Exactly. Exactly. And the hope is that the parents can read through it and think, oh, a lot of these I already do, or mm -hmm. some of these things will be just simple changes. And yeah, at the end of the day, having that knowledge that, oh, I, I don't have to feel guilty because, you know, I didn't sign them up for this class or I didn't buy them that toy. You know, I think that's just so hard in this world where there's so much marketing towards parents yeah, and there's yeah, so much right. pressure that way. So yeah, we'll see how I'm excited to see how it's received and, and hope that, hope that it's help, a helpful resource. Yeah. And there's a lot of like beautiful continuity to the work that you've done that feels like it's sort of all culminated in this moment and, and in this portfolio that you're working on with, with Bo and with Kathy. I'm curious about what that trajectory was like for you. How did you get connected with Kathy? Yeah. So I was in graduate school at the time. It was late 2020. I was studying international early childhood policy at Teachers College. And I had the privilege of working on the independent study 
turned thesis with Dr. Sharon Ling Kagan, another role model of mine who I deeply appreciate and respect too. And she was helping me create a taxonomic system for naming and defining play experiences. We eventually named this the explanatory rubric for play in early childhood, ERPEC for short, much easier to say ERPEC. <laughs> and the idea is that there's so many nuances to play, right? Their play is defined in so many different ways. And Dr. Kagan was struggling with this in her policy work international, internationally. She was finding a lot of countries were putting play into their policies and their curriculum, but not really defining what it was. And like, just like that misconception that play is frivolous that we'll keep coming back to, I think people need to know what play is, especially as it's going into more and more policy. So she asked me to try to create a way to look at all these different dimensions of play, um, ways it can manifest. So I was steeped in this play literature and obviously very, very familiar with Kathy's work. And I was at the point in my project where I wanted feedback from a wide range of both practitioners and scholars. And I was also working with an early childhood policy scholar, Dr. Catherine Stevens at the time. And I mentioned my project to her and she said, oh, I know Kathy Hirschkosik, do you uh, want to see what she thinks? <laughs> I was on the phone, I literally was jumping up and down, like, really? Yeah, of course, <laughs> so honored. I remember my future in-laws were visiting that weekend and I went to meet them and my fiance for dinner and I was just so excited and explaining it. And <laughs> I think only people in our world really understand <laughs> what that really means, but yeah, so I eventually spoke with Kathy and she invited me to present this ERPEC at, at the lab that Caitlin and I now work at and Haley had before. And around the same time, I presented it at LEGO and Dr. Thompson was in the audience. And so it seems very serendipitous that now I am working with both of them. It really was one of those pivotal life moments that we never stopped being grateful for. And speaking of your trajectory, Charlotte, can you tell us a little bit more about what you were doing before, you know, you went to Teachers College and got involved kind of with Kathy's lab? What was your path of, you know, coming to research? So I also have quite the winding trajectory. I went to Tufts University and I, as an undergrad, and I chose it for its international relations program. I was a very idealistic and maybe naive teen who wanted to go change like the whole world <laughs> international <laughs> relations um, oh, no, no. and I got a bad registration number and so all the introduction to IR classes were booked up and oh, wow. it was very regimented program so I would have had to catch up and so I changed and took a an introduction to child development course. I had always loved kids and my mom and grandmother had been early childhood educators themselves. And I'll never forget the moment where I knew like, this is it. This is my passion. Like we have to support the youngest children. You know, we've talked a lot about the zero to five, but my professor was at the front of the class describing the malleability of young children's brains and I was just blown away <laughs> and I scheduled a meeting with my advisor and changed my major to child development and, and the rest is history. I thought I wanted to do research and policy straight out from the get-go. I was really interested in inequity in education and 
really believed and still believe it's the most critical issue of, of our time. But I also knew that I, I wanted to understand what the issues looked like on the ground. I wanted to know what the experience of, of being a teacher was before I went and did research mm-hmm. about it or tried to influence policies about it. So I ended up teaching the classroom for seven years, mostly in early childhood. I got a master's in early childhood education from Wheelock College, a small uh, education school in Boston that's focused a lot on play and a lot on working um, in urban settings. And so I taught in a, in a couple different cities, including in a lab school in Beijing, China, and most recently in the Bronx as a, as a kindergarten teacher in the public school system there. And at this point, I really thought I was going to be a teacher for life. I loved it. But it came to the point where the curriculum and environment were too much in contrast to what I had learned in my studies and to what I believed, particularly in relation to how kids learn through play. And it it felt like the point where there was no more convincing to to try to do. And everyone in my school is a dedicated educator that worked really hard and wanted to give our kids the best education. Don't get me wrong about that. I, I really think it just goes back to the misconceptions around play and the definition of what play was and what it could be was really limited to being frivolous. And as an example, my my wonderful, highly dedicated mentor said to me, these kids don't have time to play. And I think that quote is etched in my mind, I yeah. think, because she's so smart, so well-educated. And I think it's just her her view of play is, is different than ours. And, and it just goes back to, yeah, I think the way a lot of people in education define play is very different than the way us folks in research define play. So I wanted to find a way to to bridge that gap and help people working in education see all the ways that that play can can support children's learning and development. So it pushed me back into graduate school and I decided to focus on international Um, education development with a focus on early childhood policy because I saw playful learning taking off in other countries and I wanted to learn what was behind that so and how we could bring how we could bring that understanding and appreciation for play and to the U.S. and and eventually have policies that support play and it's exciting I think we are moving in that direction and, and I'm so happy to be a part of that. Yeah, I love that you went full circle from being at Tufts and, you know, getting a bad registration number and not being able to get into international relation classes to changing your trajectory to ultimately like weaving those passions together and being able to, you know, work on that kind of a scale with the play knowledge that you, you know, gathered over all that time. I think it's amazing how you've woven everything together. It sounds like we all had the same moment where we were like, all of us, all three of us saw two different worlds that we wanted to bring together right? It was like Haley feeling like I want to be on the ground. I want to be making an impact at the policy level. You know, it was me behind the wall at the pre-K saying I want to be on the other Mm -hmm. side. And it was really, you know, Charlotte bringing all this teaching experience and thinking like there's got to be a better way to infuse all of the research around child development into the classroom. So obviously we all work together for a reason. (laughs) Like we (laughs) hear my common paths, but it's just cool to hear each of us articulate that moment for, for each of us. It's interesting, too, that it feels like it was such a pivotal moment, like really driven by, you know, one or a couple like sets of experiences that are really salient in our minds that really pulled back the veil and clarified, you know, this is 
this is the value add that I want to have in this space. This is what I think is missing and what I think we need to do to really make things better, whether it's in the classroom or in really translating the research and making it actionable or scaling it to policy and political impact. Um, so that's, that's really cool. We're very introspective ladies. <laughs> yeah, I do a lot of journaling. <laughs> Me too. I do. I write every day. Um, thanks so much for sharing, Charlotte. It was great to hear from both of you and just to hear like honestly, both of your trajectories and how you got there. It strikes me that all three of us are like job crafters, right? Like we didn't go in saying like, you know, like we didn't go in saying I want to do this one specific thing in this one specific way. We more came with like a purpose or like a mission that we really wanted to do and we knew particular skills that we had. So I think it's just amazing to see. Agree and snaps. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Listener submitted question for all three of us. What are the most fun and rewarding parts of your job? So Haley, why don't you start? Sure. Yeah. And um, have you sort of give both sides of this scoop? Because I think a lot of, or one of the questions that I get often, uh, especially as the sort of political zeitgeist takes us on either end of the pendulum swing is whether or not this work is frustrating when I meet with students who are interested in going to policy or folks who are uh, interested in the think tank world. They often are curious about how much of an impact we're able to have. And I think one of the fun, rewarding parts of the job is that sometimes we do have a measurable impact. We're able to, you know, co-create legislation and have meaningful conversations with folks on the Hill or folks at other organizations in our coalition who are deeply dedicated to this work and are really, really interested in creating a reality that uses those those solutions that we try to come up with for human problems. I mean, that's what that's what policy is is all about. As for whether it's frustrating, I think sure, yes, it can be. Uh, I think the whole saga with the Build Back Better Act is a really good example of this. That piece of legislation really would have been revolutionary and provided transformative support to children and families at all income levels across the entire flipping country. But you get one or two legislators who decide that special interests are worth more and the whole thing can get tanked or really scaled back to something much, much smaller. And we don't always have control over that. But at the end of the day, I remind myself of the things that I really love about this work and that we do have to count incremental progress as progress. And I'll take those wins where we can and stick it out to keep fighting for something bigger that reaches more communities. And that really takes these efforts to scale. All about celebrating those tiny little successes. Yeah. All right, Caitlin, you're up. (laughs) Okay. I, there's so many parts of my job that I love. So this is a hard one, but I especially really love writing because writing is such a creative process for me. And I figure out what I'm thinking through writing, right? It really connects me to what's going on in my head, what my questions are, new ways to solve those kinds of questions. So being able to have a job where I am paid to write and to think feels like a very wonderful luxury that I'm grateful for. So I have to say honing my craft of writing over time has been one of the most rewarding parts. And how about you, Charlotte? Yeah, so I think the work we do at our lab is, you know, we're working on building a more playful and joyful world for kids. So I think it's it's inherently fun and joyful and for me, it's rewarding to be able to translate research for teachers and parents because I think it just relates so much 
to why I'm here and what my mission is. So being able to do that work and support teachers and parents, because, you know, everyone wants the best for kids. And like I mentioned earlier, widespread misconceptions and often like lack of time and resource resources may stand in the way of that. So if I can contribute through my job um, to translating some of that research and making it more accessible, then yeah, I feel I feel very rewarded by that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yay! This was such a treat. Really this is so fun. fun. Yeah. This was also like twenty five percent of Kathy Hirschpatrick Love Fest. So shout out. <laughs> it to totally <Kathy>. was. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. And thank you so much to you all listeners for sharing your questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to every single one of them, but uh, you will hear more from us throughout this year. And thanks so much for rejoining us for a fresh set of episodes detailing new Kids Table content. That's it for today, curious listeners. So like this podcast if you liked it, subscribe and follow if you loved it, and find us on Twitter and Instagram for some amazing content created by our very own Charlotte. You got to hear from this episode. Until next time, thanks for listening.